You're listening to From the Desk of Alicia Kennedy, a food and culture podcast. I'm Alicia Kennedy, a food writer based in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Every week on Wednesdays, I'll be talking to different people in food and culture about their lives, careers, and how it all fits together and where food comes in. Today, I'm talking to Eric Kim, a staff writer at the New York Times food section and author of the just-released cookbook, Korean American. I've admired Eric from afar via social media as well as his beautiful essays, and it was a thrill to finally get the chance to talk to him and find out that he comes from a literature background, which explains the beautiful writing. We discussed how he came to food, the way his cookbook took shape during the pandemic, going viral with gochujang glaze, and his relationship with meat. Hi, Eric. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. It's so great to finally meet you. I know. It's so great. I'm meeting so many people that I've wanted to meet for a long time. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of uh, funny. I I won't say the person's name, but we have a mutual friend. And anytime I want to say something to you, I say it to this person. <laughs> instead of just, I should just DM you and be like, man, that latest newsletter was great. But instead, I just tell you. <laughs> Tell your friend and hope that. Yeah, I mean, we can be friends. We can be friends. It's okay. It's so great to meet you, though, seriously. For sure. Well, can you tell me about where you grew up and what you ate? Yeah, sure. I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, in the suburbs. My parents moved there in 1983, and they've been there since. And I was there till I was 18. And, you know, I ate mostly my mom's food. She was a cook. She, She cooked a lot of Korean food, Korean American hodgepodge dishes. And, I think when I got old enough to drive, especially, but even before then, when I kind of was tall enough to stand at the stove, my brother and I were latchkey kids. We ate a lot of convenience foods, you know, and I, I think that's a that's a big part of my my life and my my nostalgia. And I think that's it's become like a theme in my work because I just love these memories of these frozen meals. Actually, span so much farther than myself and. I think about this all the time, actually, my, the way my micro life has macro, you know, resonances. And so you just say one thing like, remember this? And then thousands <laughs> of people are like, yeah, me too. And almost always they're, they're other children of immigrants. And I think that is something I have discovered recently and, and I feel like is a real power. It's, it's, a, it's a power to harness, I think. It's really nice. Yeah. So, oh, it's just like in, in terms of like dishes, like. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I like, I like vaguely, like specifically remember this one after school snack that I ate a lot, which was the broccoli cheddar chicken hot pocket, which is like the best one and kind of very substantial. It's, it's got some vegetables in it. But what I would do is I would take, take that first bite and then squeeze it out onto a bowl of rice and just mix that up. And then later in our, later our Thanksgivings had this broccoli cheese rice casserole dish it was like I was manifesting that or something as a kid and now it's a regular staple in our on my Thanksgiving table anyway I yeah the combination of broccoli and cheese I have to admit is just yeah, unbeatable it's sublime for sure delicious I used to get the Stouffer's with broccoli like when I had my first job yeah. I would like put that in the microwave because I made like no money so I'm like all right I'm gonna go to the supermarket get a Stouffer's mac and cheese with broccoli and because it has broccoli in it, it's fine. It's healthy. <laughs> Such, it was a classic. I mean, what a genius yeah. move because that once you eat the macaroni, there's still sauce. There's so much yeah. sauce. And so 
kind of having that broccoli moment is, is really lovely. It's funny. Yeah. Well, you're you're one of those food writers who is a really good writer, too. Not to say that oh, there aren't you. many, but, <laughs> but uh, you, you know, what came first for you, writing or food? Oh, man. I've actually never been asked that. That's funny. I, well, food. Yeah, for sure. I, um, but I didn't have consciousness of it until after writing. <laughs> so I think, I think about this all the time. I, I, maybe this is a good story, but I was, I was doing a PhD in comparative literature and I had just taken an oral exam. It was kind of the big moment before you go off and, you know, write the dissertation. You start it. It's after your third year. And so what happens is all your friends show up outside the door and outside of your exam room. And it's almost a formality, like at least in the program that I went to. And um, you get flowers and then you get a laurel, like a, a thing around your head and kind of like that's your badge of honor, rite of passage. And then I didn't pass mine, though. I was like one of the few people who didn't because I was horrible at speaking. And yeah, it was, it was this huge wake up call for me because I'd wanted to be a, an English professor since 10th grade of high school or something like that. And there I was kind of like halfway through a program that would let me do that. And, and I got a low pass. They called it a low pass. But so I, when I walked out of that room, my friend had like this huge bouquet of flowers and then slowly like lowered it. And then, and then, the, you know, they asked me, my, my advisors were like, you can either leave, you can leave the program with a master's degree or you can take the exam again and then continue on to the dissertation. And I think at that moment, it was, it was the first time in my life I really just realized that that wasn't for me, the academia, and, and that writing was for me, though. And that was the part of the program that I excelled at, I think. And there was even a writing portion that was good, that, that, that I did well on, apparently. And I, I, remember, I remember looking at the room and these, these four white men, I was like, what happened? Like, why, how did I fail this? Like, why didn't you prepare me? And I didn't ask it like that. I'm sure I barely spoke, but they, I was like, didn't you said that the written portion was good, right? And they're like, yeah, the written portion was good, but this oral part is like really important. I think it was in that moment. I was like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pursue the thing I'm good at. So I didn't know what that meant yet, but what happened was I called my brother after I was in like my, my, my suit, full whatever the, it was like probably the first suit I had ever bought or owned. And my brother was kind of like, Hey, Eric, you, you, you were never happy there. You should, you love food. Like you should, you know, you're talking about food all the time. Like, and at the time I was Instagramming. That was my food blog mostly. I was just those Instagram captions. <laughs> I would just write as long as I could until I hit the word limit. And that was sort of how I got started with the food writing, I, th I think. And, and then so my brother made me realize that food was always there. It was always, it was the one constant. And I happened to have like an old boss at Food Network who was able to give me a job. And that's how it all started. So it's wow. kind of a bit of, bit of both. It was, it was writing first, but the consciousness, it was food first, but the consciousness mm -hmm. was, was later. Yeah. What made you want to be an English professor? What, what, who did you like to read? <clears throat> oh yeah. I mean, you can see it on my bookshelf here, but <laughs> it's sort of like my love for Michelle branch. <laughs> okay. Which, I which, love I don't, that. <laughs> which, which I don't hide, but I think about this all the time. Like when you're so young and you have no frame of reference for anything and then something comes at you and it just really, you know, sucks you in and you're, you know, a certain song is super catchy. And then that person's second song is super catchy. And that third song, and then you just realize, wow, I really like this person's music. And then for me, that was a uh, 20th century American literature throughout high school. It's kind of like, breezing through my English classes, you know, and not really paying attention to it because 
math was so hard and all these other things were harder. And so I just kind of didn't take it seriously. And then there was a moment in the 10th grade when I looked back on my favorite books and they were all from John Steinbeck or they were all from a very specific time period in American, uh, in the American literary canon. And I was like, okay, I guess this is it. This is my Michelle branch of, of books. So I, <laughs> yeah, I, I pursued that in college and I just loved college. So <laughs> which is such a lame thing to say maybe, but I had a great time in college and I had a really lovely professors. The English department at the college I went to was just so supportive and there were great Americanists there. And so I, um, yeah, I just figured why not keep doing this, you know? And so yeah, I, I, ca- I kept doing it and enjoyed the part of being a student, but I think I didn't enjoy being a PhD candidate. That was like a very political thing, very performative. Yeah. And I, I sucked at talking. So I was really bad <laughs> at it. I, I was really bad at acting. Yeah. 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 No, I can. Yeah, I can relate. <laughs> but you, you came yeah. to Food Media through Food Network. How did you get into the recipe writing aspect, which you've had such success in? Thank you. It happened randomly. I think, oh, yeah, like, like most things, it seems random. But then when you really, you know, narrate yourself, you can like narrativize the, of course, the, 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 the trajectory. But so for me, it was Food 52, the job after Food Network. I was mostly an editor at Food Network. And then I became a senior editor at Food 52. And it was sort of a really just, you know, it's a messy startup place. Like it, it's hard to, it's, it's a very disorganized kind of place, which meant that you could do whatever the hell you wanted. And so I really mm-hmm. felt that there were a lot of opportunities if I wanted them. And so there was no one, it's a really self-starting kind of place. So if you're a self-starter, I think that helped me. When I went, when I was there, I was like, I'd like to develop recipes and write about them. And so I did that once in a while. And eventually I, it was a column pretty quickly, actually. I had this like theme that I was really interested in, which was cooking for one. And because I was so depressed and lonely. I think that's where I kind of practiced. Right. And I practice on on real readers, I guess. But they <laughs> luckily the recipes, the recipes are pretty popular and they they did well. And I, I think what the one thing I believed in always was that that my food tasted good, you know. I knew that I had something. I think in, in Korean you would call it sonmat. It's like this it's called hand taste, but it's like this magical quality of it's it's called nafas in Arabic. But like I I just think you know, I, I felt I knew that I had something where my food just had a taste. Like I knew that yeah. um, when I put it in front of people, I love seeing their faces light up with that first bite. And that's how I knew that maybe I had something. And so that was a good playground for it. And every week I was able to see people's reactions and kind of watch them incorporate these dishes into their everyday lives. And so these readers became sort of my, they, they were like my lab rats and I think people don't realize maybe that that wasn't that long ago. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so, so I got to the times and it became my, my permanent, my like daily job of, so I cook every day now and I'm flexing that muscle or trying to like hone it. I'm definitely learning so much because I have so many people above me who, who are way more experienced and they're teaching me every day. And it's just, if I like forget about my past, I, it seems random that I'm doing this now. But I, the other day, actually, I was looking, I went to archive.org and I looked up my old website, which had this like one section. It was mostly like an academic website, like like a CV kind of. And it had, but it had one section that said cookbook. And it was mm-hmm. just where I put recipes, like things that I cooked. And a lot of them were just like Nigella Lawson recipes that I really liked and that I wanted to have down somewhere because I would have dinner parties and friends would be like, whoa, what was this? And I was like, oh, it's this thing. You can just go to my website and cook it um, or like learn how to cook it if you want. 
But I, I went back because I'm like developing this loaf cake and I had a had a cake that I would make all the time. And I sort of started from there. It was awful, by the way, like years later, <laughs> I, I baked it in my own kitchen and it wasn't very good. And I and I worked on it. But so I was always writing recipes, I guess, you know, for for years. And even after uh, high school, I started a blog called Eric Cooks. It was like a blog spot. I just, you know, I've like been bouncing around just these food blogs. And so so it's always sort of been there. And it wasn't until the Food Network job, though, actually, where I really learned how to write a recipe because my job was, I was called Digital Asset Coordinator, comma, Recipes. So my, my job was to data entry from the Excel sheets that we got to the to the website. And so I sort of saw this one style of recipe writing, which is pretty, you know, they're, they they have a very they're very like neat over there at the food network. So that's I learned how to write recipes from that job. I would say yeah, and then I got to practice it later later in life. Yeah. Well, I promise that we're going to talk about your book because but because you mentioned her, <laughs> I wanted to ask about Nigella. How did Nigella become <laughs> some someone you you look up to, an icon for you? How did that happen? Oh my, oh my god. Now I'm extra nervous because I actually, I know she actually listens, she like listens to your podcast. She's like a fan of yours as well. And like, so Nigella, turn, maybe turn off your, turn off the podcast <laughs> at, at this moment, if you will. Okay. So she, she's someone I watched for the first time on the Food Network. Like many people, they had seen, I think it was either a syndicated version of Nigella Bites or it was Nigella Feast, which was the Food Network program that they, they developed for that book, which actually is my favorite book of hers. And then, from there, I, I, I like made one of her recipes, I think. And then that made me a fan for life because I, it's like the Michelle Branch songs. Like I made yeah. the next one and the next one, they were all perfect and they all, you know, tasted good. And I think it's because she's a good writer that she's able yeah. to translate those flavors to the home cook. And so I think I just started following her, you know, I, I bought her books and then they were making me cry on the train to my food <laughs> job and then to my other jobs. And I, I, I kind of had this realization that I think this is something I'd like to do. I'd love to make people feel something. So I I just, I'm a huge fan. And yeah. I think, you know, when I first met her, I was so shocked. It was at a 92Y conversation. I met her, I was so shocked that I barely said anything. And she was sort of like, she was really kind to me. And she wanted to sign my book. I had like three of her books in my hands and I was embarrassed. <laughs> and she was like, I, she signed the first one and then I started walking away. She was like, no, I'll sign the other ones. I was like, no, it's okay. It's fine. <laughs> you know, she's so generous. And yeah. anyway, and then the second time I met her was actually for her book release for, hmm, which book was it? I think it may have been either Simply Nigella or At My Table maybe, but she she was at the Food 52 offices and that was her launch. That was one of her parties in New York and I had just accepted the job there. So I was meeting my colleagues for the first time and seeing my office for the first time and meeting Nigella and talking <laughs> to her. And I just started bawling. <laughs> Sorry, this is so embarrassing. I, I couldn't hold it in. I, I remember exactly because it's, it. I just started crying and she was like, I don't know whether to feel good or bad that I've made you cry. And, <laughs> and on top of it, my ex-boyfriend was with me and he's a good friend, but it was just, it was all so awkward and I felt so lame. And then... She was really kind and generous, of course, but so I was embarrassed. So after that, the very second piece I wrote for Food Two was about cookbooks that make me cry. And yeah. I told the anecdote through my writing, and I made myself look better in the writing because that <laughs> you know that event was really embarrassing. And anyway, since then she's sort of been checked. Like I think she reads my columns once in a while, and I, 
And that always surprises me. And I try to keep my distance because I'm still, it's, it's really wild when you, you know, it, I, I haven't changed, you know, like she's right. still my, my hero. So it's a lot of uh, like pinch me moments, I think. And anyway, she's, she's a big reason why I'm here. Yeah. Yeah. No, I feel like crying just listening to your story because <laughs> thinking about, no, just how generous she is and, and to young, yeah. to not, I mean, I, I'm not young anymore, but <laughs> to, to, <laughs> to anyone who's like coming uh-huh. up, like she just really is so generous and like that she responds yeah. to everyone on Twitter who makes her food or asks her a question yeah. and like, yeah. And like, so it's not something you get used to that. Like she brought up like a piece I wrote that came out in the middle of last year, like last week. And yeah. I was like, she remembers my piece. Yeah. <laughs> it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Yeah. It's, it's hard though for me because she is someone who, and again, Nigella, I hope you're not listening. She is, she's a big culinary influence of mine, you know, besides yes. my mother. I learned a lot about just regular cooking from her. How to eat was monumental for me and for the world. But I, I would say that because of that, it's really hard not to write her into my pieces because that is my education, you know, and, but I don't because I know that she reads them sometimes and I just don't (laughs) want her to think I'm obsessed and, you know, which we all are, but anyway. We all are, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) She is very kind. Yeah. That's the most important thing, I think. And that's the difference, I think. Yeah. Her emotional intelligence really just jumps off the page. Absolutely. Well, and to finally get to your cookbook, Korean American, (laughs) It yeah. is beautiful. It is, you know, it's about homecoming. It's a love letter to your mother. <laughs> I can't wait to see like a physical copy because I have a, yeah. a digital one. But yeah. how did you decide to approach your first book? You know, how did this all come about? It started off completely different. I, I was looking at the Publishers Marketplace announcement recently, just being you know, nostalgic. And it said, the essentials of Korean American cooking. And I was just like, oh my God, can you imagine if that, that was the, t- the title? I, I don't know what I was thinking, but that was the original proposal was sort of this really deep reported culinary cultural history of Korean America, like Korean food in America, the history of it. And I was going to really travel and you know do the thing. But what ended up happening was we <laughs> the pandemic. So <laughs> we were in lockdown and the book changed course completely. And it also was really appropriate, though, that it changed course. And I had to turn inward and I had to make it about my family because not just you know, logistically, but I kind of realized that in order to tell the right story, I had to be really specific. And to be really specific, I had to go into memoir. And that was like a relief when that happened, honestly, because that is my the thing that I'm most comfortable with, I would say. And so that that's how that happened. And, and it was really fun, too, because I was still able to kind of do the journalistic thing, but my sources were my parents. And yeah. it was it was fun to get to really dig in and see what they see what they remembered. Cause it was it was really that, just mining their memories because my memories aren't that deep. You know, they they go back a few years, but not that as far back as their their food does. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you write it's an American impulse to follow written down recipes to a T, which I loved because like I, for me, it's really difficult to follow written recipes. I've gotten better at it, actually. But, you know, there is that fear of instinctual cooking. So how do you approach writing precise rep- recipes for such a big audience? Because not just for the times, but for this book, like it's going to be a big audience of people cooking. And 
how do, yeah, how do you do that? <laughs> yeah, that was like the irony, right? Like my, right. the way my mother cooks is not with measurements. And, yeah. and, you know, as with the rest of us, so having to measure something that I've always felt was immeasurable, like even that, that, that quality of like my mother's hands, like the, the way she, her food tastes. Melissa Clark, actually, she was making my kimchi jjigae after I, I published like a version of the kimchi jjigae um, last year in the Times and she wanted to make it. And I was, t- I was just like trying to give her tips, like do this and this and this and taste and do this. And, you know, the, the recipe tries to, what you do in those moments is you give precise measurements, but the rest of it's up to like the person's palate and you, mm-hmm. you know so there are tasting notes like add more if you want more of this and and so you, you need to leave room for that kind of movement and but I remember in that moment I just really wanted to kind of like 3d print my tongue or something or like you know have it be like this usb drive that I can just give to her it'd be like it's supposed to taste like that <laughs> it's really hard to, <laughs> but you have to you have to resort to pros and I guess yeah that that was a that was a challenge with the cookbook but you know in my day-to-day development. I owe a lot of that to Genevieve Co. She's my editor mm-hmm. and she's kind of helms the NYC cooking recipes. And she she just really knows how to translate it so that it's equal for everyone. Oh, I have a good story, actually. My very first recipe that I developed with her when I got on staff, it was the creamy asparagus pasta. And that one was, it was pretty like loosey-goosey. It was, you know, my style of just taste as you go. And then she was like, there's a moment where you boil the pasta in a kombu broth, like a tashima broth. And so it just, it's like a very like seaweedy dish. And she was like, and at first it was like fill the pot to a certain amount. But she said, I think it should be a very specific number. Like it should be a specific cup amount because, so, you know, I've never, I don't know about you, but when you make pasta, you probably don't measure no, the, the boiling <laughs> water, right? Yeah. She was like, I want it to taste the same for everyone. So that's why it says very specifically to boil this, you know, this number of cups so that the broth has the right amount of concentration of the tashima, the the kelp. And then and then because that broth is also used to finish the pasta. So it, it's like this transfer of flavor. It just how to make it as approximate as possible while still leaving room for people's taste buds because everyone tastes differently and everyone's ingredients are different too. Yeah. Right. Well, you know, the the gochujang glaze for the eggplant became this like huge staple in my house. Like I, yeah. well, I first made it because I wanted to interview you and I was like, well, I have to make a recipe <laughs> of his. And so I'm going to start with uh. this one because it's already vegan. So like, I don't have to do anything. <laughs> nice. And so then, but my husband who like is really, I mean, he'll be upset if he hears this where I'm like, he's hard. He's very difficult. He can be very difficult to cook for sometimes. And so like, yeah. <laughs> the fact the, it's good though because lately he's he's cooking a little bit more and so like it's becoming more of of a thing we do together which is good because I think I was like actually losing my mind a little bit At, like the pandemic was making everyone lose their mind with cooking you know where it's oh, just yeah, like sure. I'm done I thought this was the thing I like to do most and now I'm like just totally at the end <laughs> of my rope but your yeah. recipe really reinvigorated my cooking oh. and reinvigorated my wow. kitchen and and we're very cool. happy and and we use it like on so many things and I know it was your first wow. recipe to go viral right what was that like yeah I guess so um and <laughs> it I'm trying to remember that was during peak COVID, I guess. It was like peak COVID. And that was at my mom's house. And 
I remember when it was assigned, it was, it was just eggplant panchan. It was like, it wasn't a thing yet. And it was, yeah. the it was, it was the one that I wanted to kind of play around with. And my mom told me about, I kind of asked her, I was like, Hey, what are some eggplant panchan on my, I have to write this story. And she was like, well, your grandma likes this one. It's called Kaji Pokom or she, there's also like a Kaji Muchim, but it's basically she's, she steams the eggplant and then she tosses it, dresses it in a sauce. And it's usually like the sesame oil thing, but she liked to do gochujang. And she told me that that's something my grandmother really liked. So she would make it for my grandmother all the time. And I thought that was really interesting. So I kind of did my own take on it by frying it. And, you know, there's this thing called pagidum, which is scallion oil in Korean mm -hmm. cooking that's really prominent now. It's like maybe popularized by this guy named Pek Jongwon. I think that's his name. Yeah, it, it's he's kind of like the Emerald Lagasse of Korea. He, <laughs> oh, we don't like doing that anymore, right? The Julia Child uh, <laughs> makes. And anyway, he, yeah, I think I, I made that dish and I brought it up to my mom's room. That was sort of the process. Like she'd be like, I'll help. And then she doesn't help. And then she goes to her room. And then <laughs> I, would, I would bring it to her and be like, okay, it's time to taste this. And I remember that first bite, she was like, whoa, this is, this is something. Like you're gonna, you should open a restaurant. That's like, it. when she says that, it means it's good. And yeah. Koreans always want you to, Korean parents always want you to open a restaurant for some reason. I'm like, I'm not, <laughs> that's not who I am. And, but yeah, I, and I think I, I knew, you know, I, I didn't know that it would resonate with people because I don't know. I, I think that that was the biggest surprise to see it on Instagram. That was when I kind of felt the power of Instagram, yeah. that, that share function. And, and then I saw all these people buying gochujang for the first time and it was so great. And I tried to do the same thing a second time because I thought, Oh, that's great. Like I got a bunch of people to buy gochujang. Like that's kind of, that was kind of my, my point or my hope. Mm -hmm. So I did gochugaru salmon, hoping that people would buy gochugaru. And I think a lot of people did, but a lot of people ended up making gochujang salmon from the gochujang they bought from the yeah. eggplant. So <laughs> it, uh, it all worked out and it's all fine. But yeah, it's, it's, there's always a reason for these recipes. And I'm glad that it's the eggplant that did well. Yeah. Of course. Well, you describe your mom's garden in detail in the book and you refer to yourself as a carnivore. And so I wanted to ask yeah. about this. You know, what is your relationship to to meat, you know, as a food writer, yeah, as a yeah. person? Yeah. <laughs> Great question. Something I think about every every single day, recipe developing, you know, you're just sort of there's so few reasons for meat to be in something, you know, unless it's like a roast <laughs> or right. something like that. <laughs> But yeah, so I'm always, I'm always thinking about how to take out that fish sauce or take out that, that little bit of bacon that maybe I made it for myself the first time. So I would say, hmm, to answer this, I think I would go back to the way my mother cooked. And I think the Korean dishes that we liked as Korean American, Korean American children, it's a lot of meat, you know, it's all the yeah. meat dishes are the, are the things that you kind of liked. And you would go to potlucks and it's kind of that marinated bulgogi that you leave in the freezer and you bring that to a potluck and, or you fry it outside on the grill at a church picnic. And it's always like this paper plate with the rice and then that sticks to that plate like crazy. And then, and then the bulgogi on the side. And so like, I just, that was a big component of my food growing up. But I, I would say that I sort of started eating less meat as I got older and pickier. And, you know, when I was younger, I actually didn't eat that much meat. It was, I was always like too skinny. And like my mom was always worried. And she was <laughs> like, Eric doesn't like meat. So when we go to Korean barbecue, I would eat the egg, egg the keranjim, which is that steamed egg. And 
I would eat all the vegetables and, you know, I loved rice and the tangent chicken, you know, so I might, my palate's changed so much. And I would say that it, it was, it's recently that like forgot I even wrote that I was a carnivore, but <laughs> I, I, I think, I think it was professionally. Once I, once I started cooking professionally for, for recipe development and work, I kind of realized that, you know, you're always thinking about food, all the, all the yeah. angles around food and the politics of food. And so I'm, I'm much more conscious of it now, but ironically, you know, I'm eating, yeah, like, I think I'm eating more meat than I would be if I weren't doing this for right. work because I'm kind of the one who develops the meat recipes usually. I don't, it always ends up being that way. And then, but also like, you know, those are the, sometimes when I'm pitching something, I, I want to, I just want to give someone a really easy chicken recipe and right. that, that, that service is something that really matters to me, you know, yeah. but I mean, the dark side of this is that after developing that chicken recipe, I'm so sick of chicken. I'm so sick of meat. And <laughs> it's ri- you know, it's really hard to eat um, that much meat and you have all that leftover food and it doesn't go to waste. So right. it goes in my stomach. And so my relationship <laughs> to meat, my relationship to meat has changed in, in, in the sense that like, I think it's a matter of just pitching fewer meat recipes, but it's not always like, you know. It's not always possible. possible yeah, possible. It's not always possible, <laughs> but you know, I don't have to pitch like a short rib dish or anything. It's like, so it's, it depends on the story and I follow the story, but I am very grateful when it's a vegetable kind of dish because I know I can at least just like eat a lot of that and feel, yeah. feel a little better. <laughs> and so yeah, my relationship to meat is really weird and probably a little disordered, but we'll We'll tackle that another time, maybe. <laughs> or you can ask questions if you want. We no, can un- no, I mean, this together. <laughs> there, this is always. I mean, I ask about it because, well, one because you said carnivore, so I had to, and then two because <laughs> you know people do have a complicated relationship with meat, and and I used my like the first iteration of my podcast used to be called Meatless, and it was like literally really focused on mm. how people feel about meat, and mm. but it gets really complicated. So I really, I, I don't. I know that I like talking. I like talking about it with people, but like at the same time, it's interesting because people do bring up this like, it just gets so heavy for people. And I'm like, yeah. (laughs) But that's why I I would, you're the one person I would like love to talk about that with because I just think, I love the way you write about vegetarianism and veganism. I think it's, you recognize the nuances and there's class involved and there's privilege. And I just think that's all part of the story. And you know, another way to talk about this, which is what's the point of that line, I think, if I'm looking back, thinking back on it, which is that chapter unveiled itself to me, like not to sound like annoying, but it, you know, there was a Korean barbecue chapter and I replaced mm-hmm. it with Garden of Gene. I replaced it with a vegetable chapter because I kind of just realized that there were so many more interesting things I wanted to write about and explore and develop. Not to mention we were like really we're all so full all the time. It's just yeah. needed. We, we wanted, I wanted a moment to celebrate those really special vegetable dishes, kind of like the discovery of that eggplant, you know, yeah. that I made and, you know, in my kitchen. And so, yeah, I think, I think this job on the one hand, it's like the chicken breast that I'm really sick of eating, but it's also, on the other hand, it's like, I have a newfound appreciation for re- for vegetables now because as I'm developing, I'm, I'm discovering new things about them. And that's really, really exciting. And that chapter was the most fun to write. So it's the one where I got to really, really kind of go, go off. And I think one really, one interesting story actually is, so this whole thing about like appetite and, and being a recipe developer who constantly has to taste your own food. I was doing this 
crispy tofu dish from my column at the Times. And it's a great, it's a great tofu dish. It has like a sweet and sour sauce that tastes like McDonald's and it's great. But after eating that much tofu and after, I don't know if you can tell, but my, my apartment's tiny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So my, my apartment was so disgustingly, you know, flooded with just oil fumes and so grease and I, I needed to feel better. So I, I made a vegetable soup with some of the leftover tofu that wasn't fried and it was broccoli and, you know, vegetables and, and then it was chicken broth. I had like, I have better than bouillon chicken. I love that. And it was such a good soup. So I pitched it. I was like, this is a great, like creamy broccoli soup that doesn't have cream in it. And then yeah. I was like, oh crap, but it has chicken broth in it. And <laughs> so when I was developing it, it was greenlit. I developed it. And, you know, I was like, this is easy. I'll just replace it with a vegetable broth. Nope. No. It, it didn't taste good. I tried <laughs> so, I, I made 10 pots of that stupid soup. I was so sick of it. And yeah, you know, each time it was vegetarian and vegan, but it just eluded me. And that, I think that stubbornness of that soup, I, it really empowered me to just, I, I, I had to take a break because I was so sick yeah. of it. And then I discovered, I discovered this and I'm, I'm, I think the re- recipe will be out by the, by the time this airs, but I remembered a column that my, my former writer and friend and Kristen McGlory at Food 52, she, I was her editor at, on Genius Recipes. There's a column at Food 52 and she wrote about another writer of mine, actually, Ejun Lo. He's a Malaysian writer. Wonderful. He had this coconut water ABC soup. So ABC soup is like a Malaysian chicken soup usually. And the, he discovered um, that coconut water, tomato, carrot, and onion produced a really like delicious broth full of umami. And it oh, makes wow. sense. It hits, hits all the right notes. There's that bone broth quality from the you know, coconut milk, the cloudiness, whatever the quali- whatever qualities are in that coconut water, like just, you know, literally the, the thing you buy at the, the bodega. And so it was this magic elixir that was much simpler than all of the recipe, the versions of the recipe, the broccoli soup that I was trying. So I kind of went that route and then I produced, and then it was just like magic. I, I made the soup one last time and it was so flavorful, so full of umami, savoriness and all the qualities, like all the, like, glutamate crazy you know I it was so flavorful I had to dilute it with water and so I love the story of this soup because I think it tells the story of my relationship to like cooking with vegetables which has been one of discovery and joy because it's so new to me as you know quote uh, as a carnivore (laughs) (laughs) or self-described carnivore or whatever yeah so I love that it's so funny that whenever someone points out something I've written I just like completely don't remember writing it and yeah I don't know if you feel this way, but I feel like there's this thing where you black out after you write anything. And so anyway. Yeah, I never want to be reminded ever. (laughs) It goes, it goes and then it's not (laughs) mine anymore. And then it's something else. I mean, like, I don't understand how, how writers, like I respect it because I respect all hustles, but like anyone who (laughs) can make like a Canva graphic of their own words, Mm, I can't do it, but people do it. And I'm like. I can't, I can't, I can't see my own words that way. Like, you know, like I can't see, like I could figure out what might be a good pull quote, I guess, if I had to, but Mm. I would, I just don't, I can't do my own pull quotes. It just feels vulgar. (laughs) No, I totally agree. That's such a thing. I wonder, I don't think everyone's like us actually, but I I think I would love a psychologist to sort of examine (laughs) 
<laughs> why why certain writers black out like that and i think it's probably self preservation or something like it is just, yeah right the well i think if you're writing so personally draining. yeah and if you're yeah. writing personally and you're really trying to like get like at something or like you're excavating your own yeah. emotions or whatever the only way to get yourself to still put it out there is to detach from it i think you know yes. in some way yeah, yeah. like it's you so can't true. You can't see yourself. I mean, you're going to have a book come out literally in a few weeks that's, you know, very personal. And you're not going to be able to, like, be attached to how people respond to it because, no. Yeah. Yeah. I think just the, I'm really grateful to my editor and my publisher. Like, they, they were very kind to me and generous with time because I think I had trouble. This, this book was so hard to write. It's, it's so personal, of course, but. I think that's why. So I would, each pass, I would read it. And I, I'm someone who, as a writer, I, I will use up as much time as you give me. That's yeah. the amount of time. That's why, like, I had no idea that a staff writing job would be excellent for me. Like someone who need it, <laughs> needs deadlines, who needs to be pulled away from the writing, you know, before I overwrite. And there's so many moments when my editor will, after the second, like, pass, second edit, She'll just actually take out everything I've added because she'll be like, it was good the first, it was better the first time. Like, stop. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's a real lesson. I, I need to learn how to kind of let go sometime. Yeah, this book went through a, I asked for an extra pass because I just like needed more time with my words. <laughs> I was <wasn't, laughs> like, ready to let go and it was so hard. And then um, they were very kind and did that. And now the book's coming out a little later, but that's fine. <laughs> yeah. Everything's <laughs> no coming out later. The, the, yeah. the supply chain push has delayed everything so and the one thing it's that my book isn't is on the bottom of the ocean so i'm quite grateful for that and there you go yeah i feel so bad for my colleagues yeah (laughs) (laughs) it's awful well you know the the photography in the book is really beautiful and bright and vibrant you know how did that aesthetic emerge i think this is maybe the first time i get to answer this question but jenny huang shot it i think many know her in the industry but she and i met at food 52 she was shooting a couple of my columns and we kind of like hit it off. And I think from there, we just maybe got dinner and we kind of became friends. And, you know, she was, she was also kind of just starting out really. She had changed careers and I won't tell her story. She should tell her own story, but I, <laughs> I kind of just, her photos were different. I loved even at 52 that I could look at a photo and be like, oh, that's Jenny. I can tell there's like a crispness. There's sometimes there's like a Vermeer, like, you know, uh, glamour or there's like and Vermeer's my favorite painter so it's just like really her 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 photography really spoke to me and I just love that you could look at it and be like that's Jenny Huang and that's what I want who I wanted on my team and because I, I feel that way about recipe development I feel that way about writing I feel that way about talent it's kind of like yeah I think people think talent means like level of skill or something but I actually think it means voice and yeah so she and and then not only that, she just really went into this with the art direction was her, she, 100% her. It was barely me. I kind of was way too busy to worry about art. I was sort of like, yeah. Jenny, this is your book too. Like you should, this is, I'll, I'll do whatever you say. And so, man, she asked for like really specific tables and like I had to like <laughs> find um, a specific like, you know, traditional dress. And like she asked for things and I was like kind of annoyed. And then once we were on set and we shot them, I was like, oh, I see. So I think after the first day, I was sort of like, okay, just don't ask questions. And you know, I just like do what she says because she always has a, she always had a vision, you know, she always, yeah. 
every photo you see in here, well, not all of them. Sometimes there's a lot of serendipity in the book, but you know, she's, she has, she's already thought about like how she wants the angle. And there's a, there's a photo, um, it's the kimchi jjigae with my mom kind of having lunch. And, and I can't talk about my mom because, you know, that always makes me cry. But she knew that she wanted my mom in a humble and to be eating lunch and it to, for it to be a certain angle and kind of like from behind. And, and then we saw the picture and we're just like, wow, that was in her head. And she's just, I think that's why she's a good photographer. It's in her head first. And then yeah. she knows how to get it onto the page. And um, I just like that she also thinks about cultural context. So there were moments in the book where she, she scheduled the shoot. Like it wasn't dish, 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 dish. It wasn't like, you know, a food media shoot. It was more of like setting scenes so that she could like, like a documentary style kind of like go mm-hmm. around. And that's how Korean food is, you know? And she's the one who described it like this. So I'm sort of paraphrasing her, but she described it to me like Korean food has edges. Like when you're, when you're setting a table, there's a panchan, there's a rice, there's a stew, there's a meat, there's a, you know, there's a lettuce plate. And in a cookbook, in my cookbook, all of those recipes are, on, are in different chapters. So she wanted to show the edges of, um, you know, you can, you can, if you were to like cut and paste, you could find the same patterns and see like, you can create a whole, but I think in order to show, you know, some semblance of connectivity, she was, she, she did that on purpose, kind of like showing the right. edges of dishes. And I thought that was just so brilliant and really different because I, you know, having white photographers shoot your food your whole career and sometimes, you know, sometimes getting it wrong, right. not on, you know, on accident, but just because like, I'd be like, that's not how Korean people eat it or that's not <laughs> how it's, you know, no one would do that. Yeah. She, she, it was incorporated into her art direction. And so, yeah, forever grateful to her. No one else could have shot this. The whole team, I, I really need a credit. <laughs> oh my God. Tina Huang is the, the food stylist and she and I met at a party um, with Jenny actually. And so the second I met her, I was like, okay, she's the one. <laughs> and I just knew that I, I wanted her to style the book. And then Beatrice Shaska is a wonderful prop stylist who works with them they're kind of like this trio and I couldn't break up the trio. So that's how it happened. Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, it does look so different from so many cookbooks that oh, are out coming out. You know, it's just, it's, it's vibrant. Like yeah. it, <laughs> thanks. Whereas, yeah, I feel like there's so much white space on, yeah. on covers now. And it's like, yeah. stop. I can't yeah. take it anymore. <laughs> I, any, I did not want any white space on that cover. I was <laughs> super adamant about that. Yeah. Well, yeah. how did you maintain this like creative energy while writing the book and working? Like, I, this is my question for everyone lately because, yeah. like, it almost drove me insane oh. personally. Well, this was this was your <laughs> last this was your last newsletter, right? That was like such a great a little um, bit, yeah, product, about productivity. Yeah, productivity. This is something I've been working on because during the pandemic is when my workload kind of quadrupled. You know, I was a freelancer yeah. for a year before I started at the Times, but. Even at the times I was sort of dealing with book stuff on the, you know, after hours. And so it was really hard to find moments of rest. It's just, there was no time. And what was really influential for me was my friend, Rick Martinez. I, I'm not going to pretend like, you know, he's, he's, he does have a last name, but he, <laughs> he and I were, he and I started this process together. Like our books are coming out at the same time. We have the same editor. Like it, you know, it was a lot of stars aligning and we kind of quickly became like a phone call, like friends. Like we would right. we'd call each other during the book writing process because it's so lonely, you know? And one thing that he said that was really influential for me was to take moments of rest and moments of joy, like 
no matter how short that is, even if it's five minutes, because that's, that is restful. And I really have started to see this kind of be true in other parts of my life. Like my partner and I, he lives in Philly now, so we're, we're technically long distance. And so whenever we kind of realize that we only get two or three days together, where before I would have been sad about that, I realize now that time is a circle and that it's the, it's the, quantity, it's the quality of the time that matters, not the quantity. And so yeah. for me, it's the quality of the rest and the, you know, the joy yeah. that matters, not the quantity. <laughs> so yeah, I take power naps all the time. And actually I had a re, <laughs> I had a, a Pugogi video come out where I was super busy during the shooting of that whole thing. So I look really, I look kind of, I look tired. <laughs> I look really messy and my hair is like not gelled because, and then a reader attacked me. They were like, Eric always looks like he just woke up from a nap. And actually it's true. I always am wake, waking up from naps because that's how <laughs> I get through. So I get through on like, you know, five, six hours of sleep every night. Actually, that's, I think that's pretty good, but like, you know, it's, <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to find time to slow down when there's just not enough hours in the day. And I, and yeah. with this job, this new job, I just, it's so fun. It's a really fun job and I want to be like doing it all the time. But I just kind of had this realization that I need to like take moments of rest to sort of make sure that I, I can come back and be and, and do good work. And yeah. Once I realized it was, it had to be part of my my routine. I, I tried to incorporate it more, but it's not always possible, you know. Right, right. Well, how do you define abundance? Yeah. So I know you asked this to other people too, and I like listen to a lot of podcasts to see other people's <laughs> answers. And I'm not sure if anyone's done this, but this stumped me a little bit. So I I looked it up. <laughs> so I found out that the Latin root is abundantia. Sorry, I don't speak. I don't. I never took Latin, but which means overflowing and. I thought it was really interesting that the the last definition, it, it wasn't about overflowing. It was, it was, it's the quantity or amount of something present in a particular area. And this mm -hmm. usually refers to like natural, natural resources like carbon and nitrogen and bees or whatever. And I realized that this is like, I like that definition because it describes abundance as a finite number. And I think yeah. there's a the colonial or environmental reading of this, which is, you know, abundance is something to be cherished and not exploited. And I think it's important, you know, that with anything in, in life, whether it's like a cultural, you know, document or whether it's, it's the environment, the climate, I think treating it like something that should be preserved and sustained rather than um, something that's overflowing. I think that attitude about, you know, the overflowing fountain, it's really dangerous and very colonial. And I think that's, uh, that's what abundance means to me. <laughs> well, that's always what I think I'm trying to get at is that oh, really? you know, <laughs> a little bit. Well, because I do think there is an idea of abundance as, you know, just having a lot of choices in the supermarket if we're talking about mm. food context. And then yeah. I think that 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 is a colonial concept is that, oh, we have to have I mean, look at, yeah. you know, the Defense of Powers Act, you know, calling meat processing workers essential workers, like that is a colonial idea of what it means to have enough because it means yeah. that other people are living in danger. And yeah, I think what I'm always trying to get at is the idea that, you know, abundance is like the ability to share, basically, yeah. you know. Oh, <laughs> I, I love that. And the way yeah. to share that is to not over overmine, you know. Exactly. Yeah. So to speak. Well, for you, is cooking a political act? Yes. So I think 
this is also something I, I'm just going to be honest. I also looked this up because I was like thinking about how I wanted to answer and I'm really bad at, I'm really bad at on the fly, I guess. So I appreciate <laughs> that. Uh, I appreciate that you asked everyone, everyone this, so I knew it was coming, but I think, I think cooking is a political act because politics are, are about power. And I think that that's the one question that I'm always um, answering. I'm always answering questions about cultural appropriation specifically, but when it comes to, you know, other kinds of politics, politics of gender or, or labor, I think, I think food and specifically cooking can be, it's an opportunity to influence change. And I think, I think of, I don't, I'm not going to say like, I think of my recipes as, you know, things that change or that are political inherently, but I think editorially as someone who's been on plenty of editorial, on plenty of editorial teams, like I, I know how political it is to decide to make space for a specific type of cooking, a specific type of food, specific look. I've been told in the past that my food was too brown. I've been told that my contributors' foods were too brown and that they needed a little green or parsley. And that, that, that centering of a very specific type of cuisine angers me. And this is, there's nothing more political to me. And it's been my life mission, you know, after that experience in our really messed up industry to try to kind of move the needle. And I just freaking love my, my team. I love my editors and I'll have like a brown dish and no one will be like, this needs parsley. This needs a sprig of scallions. Like no one's telling me that because they're just like, this is the way it looks. This is the way millions of people eat this. And this is, this is now our new center. And I think that's super important. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much to everyone for listening to this week's edition of From the Desk of Alicia Kennedy. Read more at aliciakennedy.news or follow me on Instagram, Alicia D. Kennedy, on Twitter at Alicia Kennedy. Alicia Kennedy.